Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another week of Lost in Science, half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire and today I am going to be rolling out the red carpet and taking us through some of the winners of Science's Night of Nights in Australia. You know what Science's Night of Nights is, don't you, Chris? Um, It's not the Prime Minister Prizes, is it? It's the... It is the Eureka, Eureka prizes. prizes. That is right. Otherwise known as, or what we call, what do we call them? We call them the Archies. Yes. Of course, we call them the Archies because Archimedes. Archimedes because <laughs> the, um, the guy, you know, Eureka. that guy. Archimedes, <laughs> you know, that guy. The, the, the bath one, guy. The bath, the bath guy. guy. Yeah, he invented bathtubs or something. Yeah, the one who yelled out, Eureka in the bathtub. Yeah. Archimedes, you know, we're in Australia, we like to shorten things. Ergo Archies. This is going to catch on. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, there's been a lot of uh, attention you might have seen lately, a lot of excitement about um, a scientific search for the Loch Ness Monster. And most people, the only thing I can remember from this story is the idea that the monster, aka Nessie, is some sort of giant eel. That seems to be the story that people have taken away from it. That's not really the full story. I mean, it didn't. the study didn't actually conclude that, I don't think you can say. But, look, what they did actually is very fascinating. It is science, and I thought I would talk about it. And, you know, because who doesn't love a bit of Loch Ness Monster, a bit of cryptozoology? I, for one, love a bit of cryptozoology. I'm very much looking forward to that. Excellent. Stu, do you got any cryptozoology for us today or something N- else? No, I've just got sort of general zoology. Ah, oh, love that as real well. Real-world zoology. Real? Um, yeah. So uh, I'm actually talking about pets, and I know most people, you know, come to terms with the fact that their pets probably won't live as long as they will, and some people around the world... It's one of life's great lessons, isn't it's, it? It's right. It's one, you know, people get pets. Unless so you've got a pet tortoise. Person. Well, or, or a <laughs> parrot. Yeah. Some parrots live yeah, very, very long time. Yeah. Um, but some people, some people with sort of more um, traditional pets, shall we say, your, your dogs and your cats, have uh, started to be able to clone their pets, and this has been happening for some years now. I'm going to talk a little bit about how it works, but also maybe why it's not such a great idea. I thought this was going to go like down like a Stephen King pet cemetery route, but yeah, cloning is much. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see we'll we'll see how that pans out. It sounds like there's a little bit of cryptozoology in there as well. Potentially. On with the show. Once again, it is science's night of nights. The Oscars of science, as some say. Not everyone. Not (laughs) everyone, or as Stu calls them. The Logies of science. (laughs) It's much more appropriate. And as we lovingly and affectionately call them, the Archies, Mm -hmm. named, of course, because Archimedes was the one who said Eureka in the first place. Yeah, I want to know if they've they've picked up your idea of a bathtub-shaped trophy yet. I don't think they've picked up on that. Once again, we are continuing our campaign, our continual, maybe we're into our fourth year. Yeah. (laughs) of the campaign to turn 
the Eureka Prize into a bathtub. Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, let's take a look at some of the lucky winners okay. and the research for excellence in Australian science. Okay. So drum roll for the winner of the Eureka Prize for environmental research went to the Blue Carbon Horizons team who are researchers studying the contribution of wetlands to fighting the effects of climate change. So this is like sequestering carbon from the plant matter in wetlands. Is that what it's about? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what they found, um, as you suggest, is that wetlands have the superpower in their capacity to sequester carbon from the atmosphere um, and more so than we originally realised. And the way that they do it is through the mangroves. Um, and through the build-up and storage of carbon in mangrove roots. Uh, now, as you can imagine, when you think about mangroves, you think about mangrove roots um, being covered by water. Um, and sticking their little bits up. And sticking their little bits up. And then the new metaphors. You, what's that? They're new metaphors. They're new metaphors. Yeah. I thought you were about to tell me about a metaphor. No, 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 new metaphors. They're little snorkels that their roots have so they can breathe underwater. There you go. Well, they're new, are they? <laughs> P-N-E-U, oh. as in pneumatic. <laughs> so, anyway, these pneumatophores and the rest of the root system decompose quite slowly, which means that dead mangrove roots can sometimes stay in place for up to thousands of years. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So, in terms of a bank for carbon, they are quite effective. Okay. But what their researchers also found was that mangroves, um, as sea level changes, mangroves keep their position in the tidal zone. So as the sea level rises, the mangroves will actually move uh, And they'll build up more And they'll carb- build up more and more. Right. So... Oh, and, and the roots where they used to be will stay under the water, so they will break down slower. Yes. That's mm. very clever. Yes. So this means that mangroves, um, you know, build up their root mass to elevate themselves um, in the same part of the waterway, depending, you know, regardless of how high the tide is. Um so as the climate warms and sea levels rise, carbon storage actually increases in in wetlands, um, which the researchers are calling a kind of feedback loop to stabilise the effect, well, locally stabilise the effect of um, climate change. And under some conditions, wetlands will likely be able to store more carbon per unit um, of area than places like the Amazon rainforest. So this is a bit of a shift in thinking and, you know, hopefully will give us even more groundwork to protect and restore wetlands around the world. All right, another winner from the Archies is one of our favourite citizen science projects. We've had Dr Jodie Rowley on the show before. Frog ID, do you guys remember Frog ID? In essence, it's like Shazam for frog calls. It's a smartphone app that allows people to record calls um, as you would both know, being the frog enthusiast that you are, only the male frogs call. So the app allows you to record the male frog calls and that attract the females and then send them in and you get a, a picture, an audio picture, if you will, of what frogs are where around Australia. So Dr Jody Rowley from the Australian Museum uh, leads Frog ID, and in just 18 months of the Citizen Science Project being underway, across the country they've had 100,000 frog records. Um, oh, put so you can on download the, the app? You can download the app, Chris. Do that in fact, now. you should download the app just in time for frog summer. Season. What frog you mean, season. You yep. mean you haven't already downloaded the app? 
Yeah, Chris. Um, okay, no, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. Because, no, when I hear a popplebonk, I, I can tell a popplebonk, obviously. Yeah, but there's yeah. a lot more frogs than popplebonks out there. <laughs> yeah, 100,000 frog records gives us a really, you know, a much clearer understanding of the distribution and abundance of frogs in different places, gives us a map of, you know, where frog species are and they've found, you know, potential range extensions for some frog species, but also found like for a frog, like the um, green tree frog, which was regularly found in the Sydney basin, is no longer found there as often. So you've also got, um, you know, changing distribution patterns for Mm. these frogs. So Mm. it's a really important citizen science app. So that's Frog ID. Yeah. I don't want you to think that I didn't know anything about this. I'd seen a reporter before and I read it. Uh, great story, Chris. <laughs> anyway, so just quickly, some other Archie winners include the National Indigenous Science Education Program, which is a unique collaboration of scientists and Aboriginal elders to encourage and empower young Indigenous students through science. And then we also have um, Laura McKay won the Emerging Researcher Archie for her discovery of a novel population of immune cells. She discovered a whole new population of immune cells. Where? Called tissue-resident T-cells. Wow. I know, right? And how critical they are for immune protection against infection and cancer. So her research looks into how she can harness these cells for the development of new immunotherapeutic strategies against potential diseases. So that's, you know... No small thing. And well-deserving of an Archie, Mm. I would say. So a big congratulations to all the Archie winners. And uh, you can see all the videos from the winners and the runners-up online. All right, you may have seen the recent announcement from Neil Gemmell and a team from Otago University in Dunedin, New Zealand, South Island. Shout out to Dunedin. Shout out to Dunedin. Of their results of an environmental DNA scan of Loch Ness in Scotland. Now, this is really interesting because, well, because it's Loch Ness, of course, and because environmental DNA is pretty cool. It is. It is. Now, myself, I have been interested in the Loch Ness Monster since childhood, of course, like any good child has. Yeah, um, and, and this isn't the first Loch Ness story you've brought to Lost in it? Science. No, I'm pretty sure you've done another one. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just um, throw away half of these days then. <laughs> um, no, look, um, I probably, probably have because I have been to Loch Ness a couple of times, actually. Have you? Yes. And did you see the monster at I any point? I did not point? see the monster. The first time I went there, I, was on, I went on this bus tour and the host of the bus, the guy who was running it, um, said that he was a marine biologist by training. So, of course, I asked him, oh, do you think there's a monster in Loch Ness? And he said, no, but um, his livelihood kind of depended on it. So <laughs> he wasn't going to be too open about that. Anyway, but like the point is that the whole thing is a little bit shaky. Um, if you look at histories of Loch Ness, a lot of them will say that the earliest recorded sighting was uh, a, some sort of water beast that was driven back into the loch by St. Columba in 565 Christian era or AD for whatever you want to call it. So it's about 1,500 years ago. 
But I don't know about this story because in those days, you know, there were lots of stories of saints conquering all sorts of monsters and dragons and things all over the place. So, you know, it's not really great it was evidence. Just, it was just something saints put on their resume, really. Pretty much. Did you fight any monsters? Yes, I fought four monsters back into various lakes around the country. Now, the first actually reported sighting was in 1933, and it was only a year later that we got the most famous picture of the monster, this serpentine kind of head and neck looking like a hand puppet coming out of the water. Of course, it wasn't a hand puppet. It was was the monster. No, it was, in fact, a little kind of wooden um, head and neck stuck on a toy submarine. See, this is known as a surgeon's photo. It was taken in 1934, but it was revealed as a hoax. Eventually, and yeah, in fact, actually, a the, surgeon's photo. Because the, the surgeon who allegedly took the photo, they oh, got this okay. guy who was a well-known surgeon to take the photo and gave, take it to the newspaper so that there would be some credibility. Mm. But look, if I know you've probably seen this picture, you all would have seen this picture. The one you would have seen is quite a cropped version. If you look at the full photo, where you got this tiny little thing in the middle of the all the, the waves and things, it does look very small. Mm. But you know, this what I'm trying to say is that. Kind of the most famous evidence we've all seen, which dates to the very start of the Nessie mania, is a known fake. So that's the kind of level of evidence we're working with here. And didn't they, didn't they also recently, they did a sonar scan of Loch Ness and found something that looked quite a lot like a monster, and it turned out to be a model of a monster that was used for a documentary. Uh, and it was used for a Sherlock Holmes yeah, right. TV show. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's been actually a few sonar scans of Loch Ness and, yeah, look, a few sort of scientific attempts. Um, there's sonar scans that have been full-size submarines, not just toy submarines. But, yeah, this latest one uses a relatively new technique that is perfectly suited to finding species in a body of water. And it's something called environmental DNA. So it relies on the idea that anything that goes in the water leaves a bit behind, there's a trace behind, right? So then if you test that water and you like you put it through a PCR thing to amplify yeah. the DNA and you sequence it, you can tell what's been in it. And you see this being used more and more these days, often in, you know, obviously ecology, conservation research, that kind of thing. I looked up some recent news reports. Uh, I found that it has been used to search for whale sharks in WA, um, Irukandji jellyfish in Queensland. And early this year, there was a massive study of the waterways in and around Melbourne um, to look what species were there. It not only found evidence that platypuses were still present, but also they identified four new species of burrowing crayfish. Wow. Yeah. Any, so four any, new uh, species. Any bunyips? No, no, no bunyips. bunyips. Uh. I guess my point is that, well, that's the thing. See, this is... Maybe if they had found bunyips, would have been a good thing. Because this is all good science, mm. but you need to go monster hunting, it seems, to get a bit of attention in this field. Yeah. yeah. So this is what the New Zealand team did. They took 250 water samples all around the lock. They spent about a year analysing it. They detected over 500 million organisms from 3,000 species. Uh, lots of fish, of course, as you'd expect. Um, they're also able to pick up land animals that had entered the water, like uh, deer, sheep, even humans. So, you know, they could track things that have been in the water. So they had a fairly good feeling, I thought, of what was there. They did not find evidence of some of the leading theories behind the Loch Ness Monster, things like sharks or giant sturgeons or catfish. Um, or they didn't find my favourite theory, which was the idea that it was a circus elephant that it was escaped and was swimming around with its trunk out of the water for decades. They live for a long time. They totally live for a yeah. long time. Probably not quite that long. They're also yeah. pretty smart, so they would have probably got out of the water at some point. Or they would have hidden. But it, most notably, though, they found no reptilian DNA. So a lot of people like to think oh. that Nessie is something like a plesiosaur, which was an aquatic reptile, not actually a dinosaur, but a sort of reptile, a bit like a crocodile, um, which is unlikely to be there, obviously, because 
or the lock is quite cold for something mm. like a reptile to be living in. Also because they've been extinct for about 66 million years. Also because when you think of the pictures you see of the supposed Loch Ness monster with the head coming out of the water like that, plesiosaurs had sort of necks stuck out straight in front of them, so they're unlikely to be sticking up out of the water like that. So yeah. there, are, there are no turtles in the loch? There are no turtles in Scotland? No, no turtles. Well, they, they didn't say they there were turtles. They didn't yeah. find any. What they did find was a surprising amount of eel DNA, hence the excitement that the monster could have been a giant eel. <laughs> okay, so there was nothing in the samples to indicate that there was any giant eels, just that there was a lot of eel DNA. Now, the largest European eel ever caught that's Anguilla Anguilla, for those of you playing at home. Largest European eel ever caught was only about one and a half metres long. So, And also, we've all seen the photo. That did not look like an eel. Again, the photo was fake, but, you know, yes, good point. Now, there is actually, there are larger eels in the world. The longest eel of any type found was a slender giant moray, Strophodon satite. That was actually caught in the Maroochee River in Queensland here in Australia. Wow. Uh, it was nearly four metres long, which I guess wow. if you saw that, you could think that's a pretty that's, big eel. That's getting up there in monster that's size. Big. Yeah. yeah I'd, I'd rather not run into an eel that big. No, probably not, but still. That is river monster. It, it's, uh, hits your eye like a big pizza pie. That's that's a moray. That's a moray. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm not convinced by the giant eel idea. It's just the only thing they can come up with. But there are some loopholes in this research. We've got to point out that there is still uncertainty about what they found. There's always a level of uncertainty with these scientific studies. Um, for one thing, there was no DNA found for otters or seals, and both those have been seen from time to time in the lock. So there is some room for kind of... Error. Error, yeah. So it's unlikely this study will stop people believing. Um, the researchers have, though, they've admitted that this whole thing was mostly about publicising the science and getting a bit of a handle on the biodiversity of this very large uh, lake in Scotland. Um, so, you know, they succeeded in getting that publicity. It's just mm. a shame that um, it's uh, the mythology that gets more attention than the science, I suppose. But it sounds like it was still very necessary research. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, do you guys have pets? Yeah. I do. I have a cat. Me too. Really? Yes. Ah. What's your cat called? Ginkgo. What's your cat called? Boudica. Do they listen are they regular listeners? No. No. Oh. No, she hates life. I, I live I live with a cat who is a regular listener to the show. She's um she's a contributor. She's a subscriber. She's a subscriber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My cat's um, been on the show. She was featured in one of my experiments. When the water planking, she she's a radio star contributed. Um, not but, the waste. <laughs> but even though the uh, the cat that I live with is not actually my cat technically, but I'm you know I'm quite attached to her. I look after her and feed her and all that stuff. Um, but I also know that uh, pets get old and they don't last forever. Um, but the technology exists to change the way we think about pets, and the possibility of cloning beloved pets is not only viable, but already a reality and is the basis of several businesses overseas. So it's not actually something you can do in Australia at this point in time, but there are places in the world where you can get your pet cloned. So you can't just go down to Officeworks and get them scanned and... You could maybe get them 3D 3D printed, printed, but it's not quite the same. (laughs) 
Could um, you? Oh my goodness! Um, so many questions to you. First of all, maybe I should get my pet clone now, so then they can hang out together and be mad at each maybe other they together. Maybe they wouldn't like each other. No, they definitely wouldn't like each other. Considering no. she doesn't like anybody, is she grumpy? Too yeah, similar, you know. Yeah. Um, but so we all know Dolly the sheep, the first cloned mammal from an adult cell. That was almost twenty-five years ago. <gasps> Oh, that was back in July nineteen. Make 19- the girl feel old. Yeah, July nineteen ninety six. Wow, that's how long ago that was. Uh, she was followed by several sibling clones, so they made more clones of the same original sheep. And did they all get along? Or uh, I don't think they kept them together. <laughs> I think, they, although with sheep, how can you tell? Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, Dolly gave birth to six lambs, so she actually had her own children who weren't clones. They were just. Regular old lammies running around. <laughs> Regular sexual reproduction. That's right. Um, but the first pet was cloned in 2004. So that was still That's quite still a long time 15 ago. 15 years ago. Um, a Maine Coon cat from Texas called Nikki was cloned, <laughs> giving rise to little Nikki. Oh. oh. Um, that terrible movie. That's where it came from. <laughs> now, the original Nikki died in 2003, but little Nikki's still around. So um, the clone has. You know, lived on quite large by now. Maine Coons are a large. They are cat. very big. It's yeah. probably not such a little Nicky anymore. Um, the following year, an Afghan hound was cloned from cells taken from the ear of an adult dog. The clone, born in two thousand and five, was called Snuppy after <laughs> the after the Seoul National University where it was born. So Aww. it's a Snuppy puppy. Snuppy. Snuppy. So Snuppy. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's cute. And recently, China was successful in producing its first kitten clone called Garlic uh, in a commercial and non-experimental setting at a company called Cynogen, who have cloned over 40 pet dogs already. Why did um, they name it Garlic? That's, that's the name the most... of the, that was the name that it, the cat had that it was cloned oh, from. Oh, right, okay. Actually, they had, yeah, they had, and clove of garlic or something like that. They didn't clone it from a from a garlic clove, no. But yeah, so the the head of Cynogen is actually the guy who got in trouble for saying he'd cloned humans. Um, so, so tell us more though about how garlic bred. Well, so I'll try to didn't work out. The sentence didn't quite work out there. How uh, garlic was bred. Well, no. also, so more famously, last year Barbara Streisand paid somewhere between sixty thousand and a hundred thousand US dollars to make two clones of her favourite dog that died in twenty seventeen. Um, now, this is probably the biggest stumbling block for most people if they have thoughts about cloning a beloved pet is the cost. Um, Cynogen in China charge almost eighty thousand dollars to clone a dog, and just over fifty thousand to clone a cat. So obviously, dog people have to be richer than cat people if they are thinking about this stuff. But the process itself is still pretty incredible. They take the nucleus of a cell from the original pet and inject it into a donor egg from another cat or dog, depending on what you're cloning, which has had the nucleus removed. So an unfertilized mammal egg only contains half the DNA to make an animal, but the nucleus of an adult animal cell has a full set of DNA, so they basically just pop it in there, and that's how it gets used. Once it's inside the egg cell, they, you know, in in Frankenstein movies, how they always get an electric shock to get the monster to wake. Well, that's what they do. That's what they do with the uh, with the cells. They give them an electric shock, and that starts them dividing. Spark of life. Spark of life. So they give it this spark of life. Yep. 
And then it starts dividing like it's a fertilized embryo. Like it's a fertilized egg. And then it develops into an embryo. And then it gets implanted into a surrogate mother to gestate over the normal period, which for dogs and cats, depending on the breed, is about 60 to 70 days. Now, obviously, this process has a lot of failure involved as well. So when Snuppy was cloned, 163 surrogate mothers were implanted with embryos, and Snuppy was the only live birth out of that 163. So that's not a good strike rate, really. Um, But when you've got lots of material, you know, you can use any cell from the sound of things to do this, so they just keep it's trying still, until it works. It is quite wasteful. There's also ethical concerns yeah. about the treatment of those surrogate dogs and cats in these uh, facilities, as well as the egg donors. So they've got to get all those donor eggs from dogs and cats, and that means that they have to wait until they're fertile and all that sort of stuff. So some people have sort of said, well, it's just a high-tech puppy farm, really, if you yeah. think of it. Mm. Um, just producing clones instead of, you know, um, but with regular puppies. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, probably a much higher failure rate yeah. uh, in the cloning. Uh, another problem with this process is that even though the genes are somewhat the same as the original pet, so the nuclear DNA in the nucleus is the same as the original pet, the clones still might not look the same as the original pet because... And, you know, looking the same, they might not behave the same either because the nuclear DNA is not the only genetic information in a cell. Um, so there's influence from mitochondrial and other DNA that's present in the donor egg that you can't really get rid of. Mm. You have to leave it there or the egg doesn't work. I um, imagine there's epigenetic changes on the chance of, like, random mutations as well and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, even you know, even certainly in plants, cloning still gives rise to some genetic mutation yeah. over time. So there's no guarantee that... It's uh, going to be the same, and the the donor egg can influence the genetics of the embryo during development. So what you get as a live animal at the end may not really be like the original animal that you're trying to clone, which is kind of the whole point mm. of yeah. going to all this uh, all this trouble. For cats at least, patterning happens in utero. So a cat pattern on its on its fur is predetermined by what happens in the womb rather than the genetics. Right. So, there's probably yeah, I think there's bits of both because certainly the, the the photos of garlic that I saw, garlic's just a grey and white cat, but the surrogate mother was a tabby. So the, so the, the coloration, but she is yeah. not the the surrogate is not necessarily the egg donor either. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's there's a whole lot of interlocking sort of pieces to the puzzle. Um, but with all the issues involved in cloning a pet, it might still be the nicest thing to go out and adopt an unwanted animal from a shelter because there's plenty of unwanted cats and dogs out there in the world, and learn to love it rather than try and resurrect one. Uh, from the past and, you know, because I've seen enough horror movies to Mm. know that resurrecting dead pets doesn't always work out that well. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for being with us this week for our episode about the Archies, 
cryptozoology and cloning pets. Lost Insights is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at lostinscience1 or on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris and Stu get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.